Welcome to Frontline of the Future, the podcast exclusively designed to focus on our frontline workforces, the contributions they make to society, and what the future of work has in store for the 80% of the global working population who don't sit behind a desk. My name is Peter Durkin, and I'm your host. And throughout this series, we'll be meeting a number of frontline leaders. We'll be exploring their journeys, and we'll be hearing their views on what we can expect from the frontline of the future. My guest today is a legend. He's one of those people whose intros could genuinely take longer than the show itself. Suffice to say, he is having a long and distinguished career, which has seen him either be a board member or non-exec for First Group, BM's Group, Heathrow Airport, Tube Lines, Commission for Integrated Transport, Transport for Greater Manchester, TfL, I could go on. Which is why most would keep it simple and simply welcome you as the CEO of Transport Times. David Begg, it is a pleasure to have you on the show. Peter, thank you. I've never been called a legend before. My wife's in the background, she heard it and she started to laugh. I'm not even a legend in my own house. <laughs> Very kind uh, introduction. We're living in an uncertain time, and anyone who thinks they can predict the future and what's going to happen to the economy and working patterns, what the impact is going to be on public transport, anyone can predict that with certainty. They're going to make a lot of money, and they're much better than I am. There's no doubt that it is worrying. It's the first time in it in our lifetime that a government has encouraged people not to use public transport. That's a first. I understand why. I get it. I'm not being critical. What we don't know is are there any long-term ramifications from that once we come out the other side from COVID-19? Is there going to be any permanent change in people's mode of choice? And is it going to lead to more people into car and less people into public transport? I don't think so. I mean, I think we might see more walking and cycling, but the arguments for public transport haven't changed. You know, the car is such an inefficient user of road speed and still far too polluting that the economic and environmental arguments for public transport will remain. In fact, they'll get stronger. But I think we need a a marketing exercise to try and get people confident in using public transport again. That's the key. I mean, I remember when we had the London bombings in 2005, and one of the best things that Transport for London did was to get the tube running the following day. If you think about that, we'd lost 35 people from the bombing, flashed all over the television. You can understand how people would have lost their confidence in using public transport, but Transport London got the system running the next day. It's a bit like falling off your bike, albeit nothing like as serious as, as bombings, but you need to get back on it right away. You need to get confidence in public transport straight away. I see this as being a really big marketing job because even once the virus is gone, fingers crossed, you know, people will still be a little bit nervous. And I guess if I'm worried about anything, the one thing I'd be looking at more than anything is car ownership. Now, if people, if there's an increase, I haven't seen any figures on this yet, but if people have decided to buy a car, they don't already have one, or they may be gone from one car to two car households, they're nervous about using public transport. That's worrying because for every new car on Britain's roads, there are 365 fewer bus journeys a year. Um, so there's this direct correlation between car ownership as car ownership rises, bus patronage tends to fall. So that's the one thing I look at. But again, 
I'm on the optimistic side here. I think public transport will, will eventually come out of this, come out of this stronger. And I would agree, right? I think that, you know, in every challenge comes the, the basis of an opportunity. And one of the questions which has fast become a mainstay on this program is about silver linings. I'm curious to think about what kind of silver linings you think there could be, because, you know, you're absolutely right. There have, and we're seeing examples of positive short-term events. You know, if you look at the, the International Energy Agency forecasts, they're saying that carbon emissions will be down by 8% this year. And that's in no small part, obviously, to the, the, the lifting of smog over major cities and so on as car ownership over the period of lockdown has declined. And that is a very real, albeit short-term, positive externality yeah. from the virus. Do you think that that has legs, or do you think that the legs of it depends on how we can mobilise that marketing machine? I think it does have legs. I wish that more people were concerned about climate change and CO2, but there's no doubt that there's a large amount of concern when it comes to air quality and the fact that it does kill people prematurely. And I, I think one of the silver linings the fact that for the first time people have experienced good quality air. You can see what it's like with a lot less traffic. People like that. People love that. It's almost like we've had a live demonstration of what it's like without a lot less traffic and fewer planes in the sky and less noise. No, I completely agree. I mean, it's, it's, I think it's one of the things that has struck me personally is how uneven people's experiences as workers have been during the lockdown period, particularly that discrepancy between frontline and traditional desk-based um, if you like, you know, you have the frontline folks arguably keeping the country moving versus the, the desk-based folks sitting from home and, and complaining about the four-wall prison that surrounds them. And it's a very different perspective on a very challenging time. I'm interested in what you said earlier, though, David, you know, in terms of, you know, predicting the future, um, no one can, and, and they'd be very wealthy individuals uh, if they could. But that is very much the point of our show. We can navel-gaze and hypothesize somewhat. And I'd like to kind of think about what the frontline of the future really means in your eyes. I mean, I think the table stakes here are to agree that frontline work, uh, particularly in transportation, will be as relevant and as prevalent. And ultimately, frontline transport workers have, have reasons to be optimistic. And I was listening to um, uh, Graham Curry's podcast from uh, Monash University in, in, in Melbourne the other day, uh, and he's been looking at the evidence after other uh, major incidents, uh, shall we say, whether it's previous pandemics like SARS, which is reckoned to be both more contagious and deadly than coronavirus, um, security or terror threats, like the bombings in 2005, as you were saying earlier, you know, Olympic years, uh, economic crises, and there's an enormous amount of change and disruption during those events. But all of the evidence suggests that in the long term, our behavior normalizes and patterns of patronage returns. How bullish are you about the extent to which we will recover and, and those jobs in frontline transport will be safe? I'm really optimistic. I think we will, but the short to medium term is we just to this with more demand and patronage is, is really challenging. I mean, I'll give you a better example. I mean, if you think the Twin Towers coming down in New York in 2001, how nervous would people be about flying? Now, here's the thing, right? We, we haven't got rid of that terrorist threat. We've mitigated it. But we, we accept that risk. We fly and we aviation's got a fantastic track record keeping people safe. But you need to be a fool to say that that terrorist threat has gone away. Now, hopefully, COVID-19, we get a virus and that the threat of that virus or some other virus is probably you know, not quite as severe as the threat of a terrorist attack on aviation. We adjust. But I'm hoping that we don't lose sight of some of the upside we've witnessed personally as a result of this lockdown, at the same time having 
vibrant, thrusting cities that are full of life and people moving around. I agree. It's very important to take those silver linings forward. And it's good to hear your confidence around, you know, frontline jobs and transportation. And I think the, the analogy, um, terrorist incidents, whether it's in London and, and New York, is, is well made. By our very nature, we are human beings and we're born to adapt. Now, interestingly, you know, the number of autonomous car trips uh, in the last year been still just a few thousand. But autonomous trains, on the other hand, you know, there's hundreds of millions of those every day. Half of all trains in Asia are autonomous. Um, yes. And certainly we're starting to see autonomous buses come to the fore. I think there are five different tests in European cities later this year. So something which has kind of historically been seen as a, a threat to the industry is really its greatest opportunity. Public transport is embracing, yes. dominating the use of all autonomous vehicles. And I think where does that leave frontline transport jobs? Do we start to see a shift where frontline transport workers are more focused on customer service orientated roles where they're communicating, reassuring passengers and being ambassadors for, for, for public transport and not necessarily driving. Look, I, I think we can do this two ways. We can get this wrong. We, we can say we're not going to change people's jobs despite the fact that we've got new technology. So it means that you could have an autonomous board who's doing a customer service job. In the, end, in the case of an emergency, what got someone who can mingle with the customers, make sure they're okay. There's all sorts of examples of how new technology is changing people's jobs. One of the toughest jobs in Britain is to be a bus driver, especially in a busy city. Some of my friends, when they come down from Scotland, they hate the prospect of driving in London and ask me what it's like. You can imagine a bus driver driving in London at the same time, having to take people's fares, uh, having to make sure that the customers are okay. It's a demanding job. If I'm looking at value for money, the value for money we get from bus drivers is better than anything. Now, along came COVID-19 and suddenly we realized that they were much more exposed than even frontline health professionals. Wow. I mean, there's, you know, we should be clapping for bus drivers. What the industry had to do was to move into this excellent customer service phase. We all know it. We, we know good customer service when we see it. If we go into a restaurant and we've got a really good waiter or waitress and we're made to feel really welcome, you could walk into a school in the hospital and you can see really good customer service. There's a feel about it. There's an energy about it. You can walk onto a bus and if you've got a really lively, happy bus driver, it changes the experience. I'm the first to accept that because the job is so challenging, it's difficult to get that type of person in. If we move to a more autonomous world, then it's going to take a lot longer to get autonomous buses than it is autonomous trains, just the nature of driving in busy cities. But if we move more towards an autonomous world, then we can recruit uh, more and more people who've got that focus on excellent customer care. So it's a different mindset, different approach, different energy to it. We have to reproduce that customer care on buses that people expect elsewhere. I think, by and large, bus passengers aren't anything like as demanding as rail passengers or motorists or air passengers. As I, I can't put my finger on it, but my parents were like this. They never complained about anything. They just accepted things the way they were. Bus passenger satisfaction is tends to be higher than, than a lot of other modes of transport. Is that because bus passengers are much more accepting? and much less demanding? I think so. If we're going to get modal shift, you never hear this language now, you know, but 20 years ago when I was advising the government, the main focus was how do we get people out of their cars on public transport? And we knew that the product that we were offering for motorists had to be better. It had to entice them out of their cars, it had to be reliable, quicker, good customer care, easy ticketing, all of that stuff that 
gradually getting there. But it's a different product that you have to offer if you're going to get that uh, modal shift. And it's that frontline employee, the bus driver, who's absolutely pivotal and creating that new environment. It's super interesting because, you know, you look at it and you start to think, well, actually, is there a different product, to your point, required again? Have passengers buying criteria shift in the wake of this virus? You know, one of the things that's been kind of top of mind for me, looking at the French press this week, the, the French newspaper is not the popular coffee-making device, seeing KPIs changing on the front line of the future, where perhaps hygiene and cleanliness to overtake punctuality, on-time performance, and so on. Would I rather that my train or my bus was late or clean? And I know the answer to that. Look, you can see a, a less upbeat scenario here. And to quote a former Conservative Transport Minister who shall remain nameless, why would I want to travel on public transport sitting next to smelly people? Now, this individual was very supportive of public transport. We're using this to try and get into people's mindsets. When you've got a car, you've got an enclosed space. You don't have to sit next to anyone. It's one of the reasons why car share hasn't taken off. People don't like getting into their personal space. People think, I'm not in my personal space. This is an extension of my living room. If anyone else comes across them or cuts in front of them, shoot the horn, they're never aggressive. Normally, they're aggressive here. And the way you're never as a pedestrian, if someone walks in front of you, oh, sorry, sorry, in a British way. Their confidence is going to have to be built up again. Because this is not, this is not going to be easy. That's why I'm saying that even once we, the virus we think is behind us and we're really on top of it and we're safe to travel by public transport, big marketing job to build up people's confidence again. That's very interesting, yeah. David. I mean, I, um, I hear what you're saying and I, I agree with it. I think, yes, there might be new KPIs for frontline teams and, and customers and passengers as they're buying criteria on public transport changes and you start to see certain things being more important than others. And yes, frontline work may change as, as we look to become more autonomous and necessarily the role but not the prevalence of, of frontline jobs will change but to your point I think you know the biggest thing that will facilitate that is a, a marketing exercise you know a want of a more grandiose title but it's about making people feel safe from in the same way that they did after those those terrorist incidents feeling safe and clean on public transport and having that that confidence to return that's one aspect to the marketing exercise if you like but also you know it's about showing them what we have achieved over the last first half of this year as far as the environment goes and that in and of itself is a, is a marketing exercise arguably like you said we've had a little demo or a little pilot of what clean living and working conditions look how can we take that and make sure that retains a spot in public consciousness beyond 2020 it's always when you're marketing you're dealing with people's perceptions perception, and people's perceptions differ from reality a lot of people's perceptions especially motorists is that the buses are the big polluters. Buses cause congestion and are the big contributor towards poor air quality. The truth of the matter is that uh, you know, one new Euro 6 bus produces less pollution than one new Euro 6 car, despite the fact that it can carry 50 times as many passengers. Buses are a key part of the solution, but that's not a perception. They're a key part of the solution for congestion, again, but that's not a perception. But like these kind of, these views that are ingrained in people's mindsets that we have to shift. Mm, yeah, 100%. I mean, you know, unconscious bias or conscious 
unconscious bias, I guess, mm-hmm. transcends human beings. And, you know, you can associate that to anything, really. I have to ask, David, I mean, really interesting getting your views on on, on, on what could constitute the front line of the future in, in, in transport. But just to ask, a, I suppose, a, a bit more of a personal question. I mean, yes, you've been a chief exec at Transport Times now for, for coming up to 15 years, I think it is, but obviously had a, kind of a, a long and varied career before that in a number of different areas. What advice would you give to a, a young David Begg, if I might say, who is starting out in the industry now and was excited about the future, uh, prospects and, and possibilities within the transport space? Get to know your customers better. Learn best practice in terms of customer care from other sectors. We look at bus in particular, we tend not to know our customers. We don't know what they think. We don't know what they want. We don't communicate them. Help us. You're part of this. You know, we want to produce a much better product here. We need your help. Due to that specific example, running a bus company, I would want to know my customers. I'd want to communicate with them. I'd want to drop them text messages. I'd want them to reward them for loyalty. I'd want to tell them when, sorry, I'm, I'm really hacked off. We couldn't really produce reliable journeys because of these roadworks. But the other thing I'd do is I'd form an incredibly close partnership with the local authority and the highways authority. I would want to know the local politician who's in charge of road space allocation really well because without that close partnership, you're never going to deliver. We're actually seeing a decline in service and a decline in industry. It doesn't have to be that way. If I was pointing to examples of real success, the one thing that I think I could point out to is real good quality people at local government and at bus company level who are focused on delivering for the customer. And when you get that, you get success. The front line of the future, in your mind, puts a, a real emphasis on, on things like marketing, customer service at its most deepest and, and intimate level, and also communications. And those are skills which are relevant in any business. So it's, it's almost about looking at best practice in other industries, to be fair, looking outside of bus um, and thinking about those core competencies which are important no matter what line of work you're in. Thank you, sir. <laughs> <laughs> I promise to meet that for a cup of coffee. <laughs> Me too, yeah. sir. And a big thank you to you, all of our listeners too. That's it for today. But fear not, next week we'll have Martin Harris, MD at Brighton & Hove and Metrobus on the show. Be sure to subscribe as we bring you more from the front line of the future.